0: Sup freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat back down with Lynn Alden. It's always great catching up with Lynn. Talked about a lot. Fed policy, fiscal policy, energy, Bitcoin, Lightning, Fedimans, Noster. Trying to front run the war drums that are beginning to beat. Get out in front of the people, say, hey, they're trying to distract you. Here are the problems. Great conversation, as always we have not posted the previous episode with Kelly Landon yet that gets posted tomorrow, tomorrow being the next day from the day I'm recording this ad read right now. Not tomorrow. If you're li- not, not Saturday, if you're listening to this, when this episode drops on Friday. Um, so I have no booster grams. as the long winded explanation of the time and the recording was because I don't have any booster to read. But if you are listening via podcasting 2.0 enabled app, contributing in the value for value model thank you we appreciate it i think this is a very boostable episode if you're liking what lynn's putting down send us a boost this rip was brought to you by our good friends at river River's here building a bitcoin company i do not call it an exchange logan i'm no longer calling it an exchange it does have an exchange component to it but it's much broader than that it's much bigger than just an exchange it is a bitcoin company built by bitcoiners for bitcoiners they build all their own infrastructure. They built their own wallets. They don't leverage any third parties like Prime Trust. They own the whole stack, which is what you want to see in a Bitcoin company. They do have the exchange. If you DCA using the exchange part of River, uh, you're not going to pay any fees on that. Uh, you can send and receive lightning via River as well We're on the cutting edge of the engineering. On top of that, they have River Lightning Services, which is an API if you're a developer looking to build apps on the lightning network and you want to leverage... River's API. They have River Lightning Services. Uh, and then, yeah, they have mining services on top of that. If you want to get an ASIC, plug it in. You can do that via River as well. You may have your exchange, but it's time to leave your exchange for a Bitcoin company that also has an exchange within it. You want to, you want to partner with a company that is on the cutting edge, and that is River. Go to river.com slash tftc. Use the ref link to sign up and you'll get some Bitcoin back after you purchase a certain amount of Bitcoin. River.com slash TFTC. This rip is also brought to you by good friends down the hall, Unchained Capital. They're here to help you link, eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. Their vault is the go to product to do that. Two or three multi sig. Go to unchained.com slash consultation. They'll walk you through everything, get your hardware wallets, get your vault set up, get you comfortable. Um, but another single point of failure that they're eliminating is uh, you uh, and your time on this earth. You may be a Bitcoiner with a nice stack. You're wondering, how do I pass this to my family? God forbid anything happened to me. Well, Unchained has built an inheritance protocol to make this very easy and to give you peace of mind as you hold Bitcoin that your loved ones will get it if anything were to happen to you. So go to unchain.com slash consultation. Uh, reach out to them to talk about the vault getting set up on that uh, and to learn more about the inheritance protocol, tell them the TFTC sent you and you'll get $50 off that consultation service. They also have an IRA lending desk, trading desk, great Bitcoin company. This rope is also brought to you by our good friends at crowd health. Crowd health is here to help you reimagine how you take care of your healthcare cost. Health insurance as an industry is a notoriously opaque expensive impersonal crowd health is here to change that it is not health insurance it is another way to pay for healthcare. it is a crowdfunded model you pay a monthly subscription fee that goes into a dedicated bank account if you ever have a medical event you go to crowd health say hey i'm going to the doctor you go to the doctor give the bill to crowd health they negotiate the bill lower for you doctor likes this because they get paid in cash right away you pay the first 500 dollars of your medical bill and then it gets crowdfunded by the rest of the crowd health community. They have a Bitcoin community within crowd health, which will allow you to stack Bitcoin uh, in your health account alongside dollars in the bank account they set up for you. Um, so you can speculative attack your future healthcare care cost. Uh, and another thing to mention is crowd health uh, is a healthy community. There are some metrics that need to be met to get in. And so the overall health of the crowd health community is better than the average here in the United States. And so the overall healthcare costs within the crowd health community are lower. more People are healthier They go to the doctor's less. It's a beautiful thing. My family's using health or crowd health. Yours should be too. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Sign up using TFTC as a promo code. You'll get $99 a month for the first six months on your subscription fee. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. Lynn and I talked about it, the layoffs in the tech sector. If you are one of those individuals who was in the tech sector who unfortunately got laid off and you're a Bitcoiner and you've been looking to get into the industry, but you just don't have the network to make it happen, go to bitcointalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you. They have companies, Bitcoin companies, building the future of the global monetary system lined up looking for talent. They're looking for you. They just can't find you. That's why Bitcoin Talent Co. exists. So go to bitcointalent.co, tell them TFTC sent you. If you're looking for a job, likewise, if you're a company looking to get the best talent in the world into your company, you should go talk to Bitcoin Talent Co. as well. They're going to understand your needs. They're going to help articulate that to the talent you're looking for. And most importantly, Bitcoin Talent Co. was built by Bitcoiners who understand the different nuances of the different areas of the Bitcoin ecosystem multi-sig, lightning, uh, custody, financial products, privacy. There are Bitcoiners who understand what the different address structures are, uh, the difference between l and C-Lightning, LDK. They know what they're talking about, so they can better uh, screen talent for you. So get a bitcointalent.co. Tell them the TFTC sent you, and enjoy this rip with Lynn Alden. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: It's been too long, but I
1: agree. I agree.
0: But I'm excited we're talking today. We were just mentioning that, uh, Jerome Powell's on Capitol Hill, uh, getting grilled, I forget if it's Congress or the house, uh, or the Senate, but he's getting grilled and we were just mentioning, it's funny, uh, he essentially had to admit to kennedy that uh feds policy is probably going to drive up unemployment unless the fiscal side comes in and helps them out with the inflationary pressures but you were you were mentioning that this historical tie between inflation and unemployment doesn't really materialize but it is the feds mandate to really focus in on these two metrics alone
1: yeah it's a really weak correlation uh you know it came about back when labor was more domestic in general right less less globally interconnected uh and you know the general idea is that if you know the economy is running too hot uh you know they can they can tighten money they can raise rates to try to you know make it run a little cooler on the other hand if it's running too you know slow they can loosen money and try to get more people back to work and of course you know there's been major decades of stagflation we have high unemployment and high inflation you know, if you kind of map out the long-term relationship between unemployment and interest rates it's a very weak correlation overall and yet the, the entire institution of the fed is basically based on this relationship being extremely tight right their, their mandates are you know basically price stability which they currently define as two percent average inflation per year the way they measure it uh and uh you know uh, optimizing long-term employment um, and so they, they kind of inherently have this this relationship built into their DNA. And so it's kind of like you know they're operating on a certain algorithm that might or may not be applicable and more often than not is, is not particularly applicable, but that's kind of what they they have to do legally. And so it's it's kind of um, you know it's an interesting system. and it's it's I think we're at the phase of the long-term debt situation, the long-term fiscal situation. Where interest rates and overall monetary policy are going to be increasingly politicized. Uh, the last time government debt as a percentage of GDP was this high was at the 1940s, and the Fed was essentially captured by the Treasury. Basically, they had to make interest rates, you know, at, at a, uh, a level that was, you know, in line with how much debt and spending were happening at the public level. They had to keep them low despite high inflation. And now, of course, we have a, a different degree of central bank independence. But I think that's going to be increasingly challenged, and it's there's the the two interesting sides of that are one, I think some of the challenges are appropriate in the sense that you can say does your model even make sense, right? So they can ask Powell like does your does your focus does, does your focus on creating more unemployment is that actually going to bring down inflation? Um, on the other hand, on the public sector side, there you know a lot of the inflation we're seeing is fiscal driven inflation, uh, and so there in many ways is that you know they're Decisions over decades have contributed to this it's, it's part of the underlying money creation mechanism and you know so they're, they're kind of uh, facing their own problems and so I think that's going to be a, a, a whole thing this decade.
0: Yeah it reminds me of a conversation I had yesterday with Kelly Lannon. we were talking about real estate market but we we dove into uh, the railroad infrastructure and that being a shining example of something where the maintenance on these railroads has obviously been subpar railroad operators. are like, all right, it's good enough to get it from A to B. But if inflation gets too high and you destroy any possibility of actually maintaining the railroads, you could have breakaway inflation. Cause if they break down, you can't fix them. No matter what you do, you're not going to get supply to where it needs to be. And so if you can't buy something, it's just going to drive up. The price it becomes more scarce.
1: Yeah that's i mean if, if you challenge the whole relationship between labor you know unemployment and inflation basically it's uh, you know who, who would look at inflation and think okay we have to make sure fewer people work now we have to make sure fewer people are providing goods and services in order to get inflation down right that doesn't make that doesn't make sense right it's basically a very demand driven lens it's like we need fewer people working so they have less income to buy things that's kind of the the you know the assumption but they you know they're ignoring the fact that those people are also working which are producing the, the supply of goods and services you want maximum employment all the time if possible because that's that's where our supply side comes from and so some of the things that they do risk hurting the supply side uh which is is a large part of of where this inflation comes from basically we have we have a, a tightness of real world constraints you know energy labor especially the types of labor we need people that can build things and maintain things uh on the other hand the a lot of the excess demand we have is coming from that fiscal component which is not going to be affected by monetary policy it's actually made worse by monetary policy in the sense that if you have you know if you have deficit-driven inflation and you raise interest rates meaningfully and hold them there for years then it's it's larger deficits that's actually more money pouring into the economy and so it's just kind of an interesting dynamic and I agree with you that basically that the inability to build or maintain things is is going to I think going to be a key theme for a while because that's not something that you can change very quickly that's you know we, we've kind of undermined our industrial base for decades uh, we've we've prioritized certain types of work over others by the nature of our system right so if you work in technology healthcare finance government you know you, you're you're doing pretty well but if you worked in a physical trade you know it, it, it's an uphill battle the whole way and and so we've kind of disincentivized that type of work and so it's, it's not shocking that we have pretty structural labor shortages in that type of thing
0: yeah it's it's pretty alarming when you put it all in context and then bringing it back to the fed again with their dual mandate of price controls and stable job markets doesn't seem like they're <laughs> achieving their goals with their aggressive interest rate policy at all. I mean, obviously the CPI print has come down a bit the last couple of months, 6.4% in January. However, if you dig in to the individual verticals within CPI inflation, food still above 10%, energies around 8.2. Yes, natural gas and gasoline prices have come down, but this could be a temporary lull in in a bull market for energy especially if you consider that china's going to open up their economy so like is this the the last gas with the of the fed When, when i'm looking at it, it seems like their their interest rate policy has been completely ineffective because cpi is coming in at 6.4 that's growing on a bigger base that was set last year number one and then number two i've heard, um a newsletter about this last night like shrinkflation is becoming more and more prevalent as well which is not being reflected in the cpi either so i i think everybody who listens to this show and has been for years knows that i think cpi is completely bunk but even though it's well above the two percent target i think it's severely underscore or uh, not reflecting the actual inflation that exists in the economy and if actual inflation is much higher and the CPI and the, the Fed is proving to be completely ineffective. Where does that leave
1: us? So I think, yeah, we definitely have to analyze the path dependence here. So for one, I do agree that CPI has, has historically understated actual inflation. Uh, basically, uh, and the, one of the biggest components is um, uh, how how they redefine shelter. Um, there's also challenges, obviously, with hedonic adjustments. One of the things I like to do in history is look at um, a handful of things that just don't change, you know, like beef. uh you know, gold, bacon, oil, bear of oil and look at the price of those over a very long period of time. And, and some of those are obviously very volatile in a 10 year period because you, you have you know, obviously big, big supply comes online and then there's periods where there's not enough supply. But if you look at them over the course of like a 50 year period, most of those things have gone up faster than the CPI um because cpi you're basically you're, you're constantly adjusting towards cheaper things uh and you're factoring out uh some of the uh appreciation in real estate because they're, they're using owner's equivalent rent instead of housing there, there are brief periods where you could actually cpi could ironically overstate inflation like if you have um house house prices stagnate for a while and their their shelter component uh, is like operating on a lag because it's kind of this like janky calculation. You can have this like brief window where like CPI is actually, you know, overstating inflation uh, because it, real inflation is more volatile than their calculation will uh, get to. But the majority of the time, uh, I think it's generally going to understate it. Um, as, for, as for basically the path dependence here, you know, my base case early last year was that they were going to tighten into a recession. They would probably get the uh, inflation down. And then, because the underlying problems are unresolved, when they try to loosen, when they try to have another growth phase, that that inflation is going to come right back, right? Until you basically fix, you know, the combination of structural fiscal deficits and fix uh, the energy supply and 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 transportation problem globally. Um, you know, as long as those two pieces are there, inflation is ready to bounce back whenever there's a period of growth. And so that was the base case. We're starting to see early signs that they might not even be able to get. You know, inflation down uh, as much as they wanted before the next cycle of inflation. I'm not quite there yet in terms of saying that they can't. Um, I I I still think they have a window here where they can cause so much private sector damage that they might be able to temporarily get inflation down. But I think the main problem is that it's just ready to go. It's ready to come right back as soon as they have another growth cycle, as soon as they let their foot off the brake for a brief period of time. And basically, you know, they're using 1970s. Monetary policy to fight 1940-style fiscal-driven inflation. So, you know, if you look at over time, this, the the inflationary decades that we've had in the United States and elsewhere have had very different reasons for why that inflation exists, right? So, the 1940s, banks weren't lending much, but instead the government was running absolutely massive monetized deficits, uh, and that was the source of money creation and, and prices going structurally higher. Um, in the 70s, you did have deficits, but they were much smaller, and that was the peak period for bank lending. So basically, the, the credit multiples constantly going up. Uh, banks were lending aggressively. You had a um, you know baby boomers were entering their home buying years. Then you combine that with oil shortages. So you had both supply side constraints, and you had tons and tons of bank-driven money creation. And so back then, one of the main tools they used was trying to slow down that bank money creation with tighter monetary policy. That's basically the Volcker playbook. They also did a bunch of geopolitical things. I mean, they, you know, they went after unions to try to get domestic uh, labor from from you know going uh, up like it was. They tried to open up global trade. So they did a lot of other things uh, in addition to monetary policy. But basically, that tight monetary policy made sense in an era where banks were doing most of the money creation, uh, whereas in the 1940s or the 2020s, when most of the money creation is fiscal deficit spending, when you raise rates, it doesn't really change what the government's going to do. I mean, they're going to spend what they're going to spend. And now they're just actually pouring even more money into the economy with their deficits because they're paying such high interest rates on them. And so it's kind of interesting to, to see them do the 1970s playbook for a 1940s problem. And in my mind, it just shows that even if they temporarily get inflation down, they don't fully understand the nature of the problem and so it's ready to come right back.
0: Yeah. No, I mean the interest expenses on the debt have been a big theme in the news over the last few months approaching a trillion dollars annually, which what would that be in 2022 or excuse me 2021 tax receipts 2022 isn't in yet, but uh, we're tax receipts like 4 4 trillion around there. So yeah,
1: something like that. Yeah. It'll be a very big percentage it's also rising as a percentage of GDP basically ever since, you know, when you look at, at, um, public concerns around the debt, uh, they peaked in the late eighties and the early nineties, right? So if you look at interest expense over time, it was going parabolic in like the seventies and the eighties and in the late eighties and the early nineties, it reached uh, a peak as a percentage of GDP. And that's because you had rising deficits and you had high interest. On that, on those deficits, and that's you know, for example, the the famous like um, uh, national debt clock was installed in the the uh, late '80s. Uh, also in the early '90s, you had some of the most successful, yeah, the most successful third party candidate in American presidential history, uh, you know, Ross Perot, and he, he uh, big thing he ran on was the debt. Uh, that was like a big theme that was like really, um, you know, it got the public attention at that time. And a lot of that was kind of like three decades early, because what that, what generally happened over the next couple of decades was you had this you know rapid period of globalization, uh, lower inflation, lower interest rates, and so even though debt as a percentage of GDP kept going up, the interest expense kind of stagnated, uh, especially relative to the size of the economy, and it, it went down for a period of time, and so you had basically you know, four decades of rising debt as a percentage of GDP and four decades of falling interest rates, offsetting that. And now we're in like the awkward part of the cycle where debt as a percentage of GDP is still going up, but those interest expenses are, are not going down anymore and might start trending higher. Uh, certainly in the near term, they're, they're trending higher. And so that's when you actually revisit those concerns of late 80s and early 90s and say, okay, basically, you know, they, they were early. But now we're actually getting to the phase where some of the things they're worried about are more structurally occurring now, and there's a lot less wiggle room to deal with them.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it's only going to get worse. Like I was mentioning, we were I was following up on Powell's comments on Capitol Hill today. I saw uh-huh. the probability of a 50-bit hike um, during the next meeting jumped from, I think, 39% to 59% during his hawkish comments, and so... That's only going to exacerbate the problem. Then the question is, does the U.S. have the political will to do what is necessary on the fiscal side? I'm not so confident. How are you feeling about it?
1: I don't think they do because, um, I mean, a couple of reasons. One is just the you know the, the political polarization makes it almost impossible, basically. They're, they're not going to most likely trim any sort of intermediate term entitlements. Uh, you know, a lot of this, these things are – Baked into the cake from decades ago, uh, and demographics—they're not going to probably trim military spending, uh, especially what's happening geopolitically. You know, I, I think you could ask reasonable questions like, "Do we need seven hundred fifty foreign military bases?" <laughs> you know, I would say no. Like, you could probably trim that number down, but I don't think that in this in this era is when they're going to do that. Um, and I also don't think you're going to get much, if any, tax increases. Uh, because it's, you know the the Republican side is probably going to be pretty adamant on that, and so when you add both sides to, together, all the you know one side doesn't want to cut military, one side doesn't want to cut entitlement, uh, one side doesn't want to cut taxes, and then if you look at um, kind of the the Trump wing of the Republican Party, he's he's strongly in favor of keeping Medicare and Social Security there. That's kind of how he's been differentiating himself from other other players in the Republican field that have historically been more in line with cutting those. And so I I think basically this is the current political environment makes any sort of meaningful cuts to the fiscal deficit very, very hard to do. And then a further complicating thing is if you just look at kind of the history of of debt to GDP for countries in the world, once you get this financialized and you get this high public debt to GDP, even if you were to do those cuts, it would probably also negatively impact GDP so much. That even though you'd rein in the the deficits at first, you'd actually probably still keep increasing debt as a percentage of GDP because a lot of that GDP only exists because of those deficits. Um, you know, if you if you if you do also if you have like say 50% public debt to GDP and you and you and your you know your deficits are getting a little wide and then you do austerity, that works, right? Because you, you didn't let the problem get so big that your GDP is reliant on those giant debts and deficits. Whereas once you get over to like 100% debt to GDP. Austerity often backfires because you, you're all, your GDP is already so financialized, and so that's it's kind of this thing where it's inevitably going to go through a very hard period, and you know I, I think they might have attempts at austerity. Um, we kind of saw that in Europe after the European you know crisis of 2012, all that debt crisis. There were like these attempts at writing in the deficits. I mean, you got Italian deficits down to like two percent of GDP, which for you know is their attempt at austerity. Um, you know, during the kind of the the period where Obama was president, but then there was Republican uh, you know power in, in Congress and Senate, you had that gridlock, and so you actually for a while you had falling uh, deficits as a percentage of GDP as they kind of locked in the existing structure. But that started you know blowing out when you started to get entitlements, uh, you know, kind of that demographic peak started to come and, and manifest, and then also you got you know uh, you know Trump stimulus tax cuts that were not offset by spending. Uh, and so basically, no matter what arrangement we have in politics, it, this kind of train is already going. Like the momentum is so strong for it.
0: Yeah, we're in the damned if you do, damned if you don't stage. And considering that the 2024 election cycle is beginning to heat up, it, I find it <laughs> very hard to believe that anything on the fiscal side will will change moving forward. It's just too politically untenable during an election season. and. And that gets to the broader question too. Like we've been focused very specifically on like U.S. policy. Obviously, over the last year to six months, uh, many countries outside the U.S. have seen uh, the uh, the sovereign reserve seizure of Russia. They've seen the turbulence here in our economy, and they're beginning to position themselves, particularly countries like Russia, China, uh, and Saudi Arabia to buddy up with each other and begin maybe defecting from the U.S. dollar reserve system in some way or another, slowly but surely. What, what do you think the ramifications of the turmoil we're seeing in the U.S. economy um, and our inability to tame inflation is having outside the U.S. in terms of other countries beginning to look at alternatives?
1: Well, I think in general we're shifting towards a more multipolar world. Um, you know, if you looked at, you know, gold as a percentage of sovereign reserves, for example, or just even just the number of tons they have, they were on this like structural decline from like the 70s until like 2008. Basically, you had rising dollar dominance and you had falling gold dominance. And after 2008, when we basically just printed the difference, like when our bank system blew up and we just printed, uh, you started to see this like reversal uh and and foreign central banks started buying more gold again and they, they've actually kind of gotten back up to like you know significantly pre-2008 uh, levels um so that was like one factor number two is you had uh china belt and road initiative when they launched that it was something like 2013 they basically came out with a an announcement uh and they just said like accumulating treasuries is no longer in our natural national interest um and so what they started to do instead was was take a, a you know, page from the european and american playbook of like monetary you know like neocolonialism where they say okay we're going to start instead of like taking all of our dollar surpluses from trade from the trade surpluses we're running with the americans instead of like putting all those dollars back into us assets uh we're going to start making dollar loans to african countries latin american countries uh central asian countries uh basically help them build infrastructure that kind of all leads to china uh buying commodity rights that kind of thing if they default on that any of that debt, that basically some of those rights go over to China, and so they have kind of, you know, tied themselves into this global euro dollar market uh, to a significant degree. Instead of buying treasuries, um, and Saudi Arabia, you know, instead of just constantly taking their uh, petrodollars and putting them into treasuries, they're putting them in things into like you know their sovereign wealth fund. Uh, kind of these for a while they were really into these big tech growth type of stocks. Uh, they're, they're doing domestic development, they're doing all sorts of partnerships. Um, and so basically, the, the, a lot of these countries are saying, instead of just this current system that was in place for decades, we're going to start investing our, our dollars elsewhere, at least around the margins. So we're not, it's not like we're dumping all of our treasuries tomorrow, but it's like we're just not going to keep accumulating our stockpile and might even trim our stockpile like China's done. Um, and so I do think we're shifting towards a more multipolar world. There's obviously challenges there. I mean, one, you know, they can settle in gold, but they still have all these like payment centralization issues, and so you see them working on like, you know, like uh, what is it, Enbridge or something, where they're 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 basically they they have like this like blockchain thing that they're working on with the BIS to see if they can like settle things outside of SWIFT. Um, you know, these, these all these alternative payment systems. You know, Russia has theirs, China has theirs. Some of these collaborations. And there's ongoing frictions there, but I I do think a general trend is is there's a pretty adamant shift towards, you know, with the combination of more multipolar payments and more multipolar reserve assets. You know, instead of just dollars, it could be gold, it could be yuan, you know, it could be others. You know, if Bitcoin gets big enough, you know, that gets interesting, but it's not, you know, right now at at the size it is, they're not really, you know, it's more about gold and, and currencies and, you know, equity types of investments. And I think that's the general trend we're on, is that, that we're multipolar. But it's funny because there's like there's weird frictions. Like, for example, India is another country that has kind of broken out of the Western consensus. And they said, well, I mean, we're going to basically buy all the spare Russian oil then, right? Because then they literally said it. They said, look what's happening to Sri Lanka. you know, We're not going to have that happen here. So we're going to buy whoever is going to sell us oil the cheapest. So India started buying a ton of Russian oil, and they already had plans in place to expand trade with Russia anyway and one of India's goals was to buy oil in rupees um yeah that was promising for a while but the problem is now they're actually buying so much Russian oil and Russia doesn't want that many rupees basically you know India's running a pretty big trade deficit with Russia um and so that actually creates like a settlement problem and so there's always these like weird frictions they run into when they're trying to have like this big fiat. Barter system we essentially have in place. You know, we have 180 different fiat currencies, and whenever they're trying to do global trade, it's it's kind of a nightmare for them to work through, and it's it's a slow process.
0: If only there was a politically neutral, distributed monetary system that that these people could use to settle their yeah, trades with. If, if, if only, if only. <laughs> well, I guess that's we could dovetail into like the whole Bitcoin conversation. I mean, I think we both agree that it is a superior settlement network, but. With that being said, the liquidity profile of Bitcoin probably isn't where it needs to be to settle these types of trades on the international level. Do you agree with that?
1: I agree. I think you need you need, you know, a, a 10X, right? I mean, if you look at oil trade, I mean it's it's you know, we're talking trillions of year in in oil revenue that that has you know that that has to be settled somehow. And you know, the depth of the, the Bitcoin market is not really in line yet with global trade numbers. And so, it's certainly possible for like these smaller countries to explore it. There's also just career risk, right? I mean, if you're like the finance minister or the central bank, you know, executive, and you say, "Hey, let's let's do Bitcoin," and you know, then it crashes, you know, eighty percent, and like you're the one that gets fired, basically. So it's like there's there's limited upside for you, and there's plenty of downside for you. So there's kind of this institutional inertia that makes experimentation uh challenge. They'd rather Explore partnerships and things they can control more. Uh, so I, I think it's more of like this window where you know, uh, you know, gold and and FX are kind of the instruments of the central banks, and Bitcoin's kind of left for the people at the moment. And I think you know if the people get it, you know if they add another zero to its like price and market cap and liquidity profile, you know then it becomes harder and harder for central banks to ignore, and the more interesting it would become to them as both a payment rail and uh, a savings instrument, because the overall liquidity and robustness and, you know kind of durability would be all improved in their eyes. So th- th- you know, I think that's that's kind of what we're on now. And if you look at China, for example, I mean, you know, they're trying to solve like India's problem there of like, you know, buying too much oil with rupees and then Russia not knowing to do with the rupees and therefore not really wanting rupees, you know, China tries to solve that problem by having Chinese convertibility to gold. You know, it's hard to get money in and out of China, but it it can go through gold to a certain extent. Um, and so they basically say, well, if you, if you get too much Chinese, yuan, you can use it to buy gold. Right. And so that's, that's one of their mechanisms for trying to solve that problem. And I think that's a, a decent like intermediate term mechanism. That that is, you know, interesting for a lot of countries, but yeah, ideally you'd have something that doesn't rely on that t- type of centralization, that type of counterparty risk, and something like Bitcoin. It just has to be bigger, I think.
0: Agreed. And I actually don't mind this order of operations getting it into the hands of individuals first. Um, I agree. Before the central banks adopt it. I like that. And it's very interesting. Obviously, we're both deeply ingrained in Bitcoin. I saw you tweeting this out uh, the other day, maybe last week, but everything we've discussed up to this point, the monetary and fiscal situation here in the U.S. and the reaction to that situation outside the U.S. in parallel with all this chaos going on in the macroeconomic and ge- geopolitical landscape, people are building out the Bitcoin network, adding more accessibility to it, utility to it, What and beginning to uh, inject it into other open protocols, uh, whether that be RSS or things like Nostr. Like, what is your current view on what's going on in Bitcoin?
1: So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really optimistic about it. I think Nostr has been really exciting, right? Because you're, you know, in addition to having open uh, transfer of value, you have open transfer of information, uh, which is, you know, hard to stop. Um, so I, I like these layers that are building and working with each other. Um, I like the proliferation of lightning in general. It's still very small, but it continues to grow, you know, pretty rapidly from that small base. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to measure some of the statistics with it, but you know, there's been really good reports by Arcane Research and by River uh, that kind of lift the veil on you know the part of the network that they can see and that they you know that they have exposure to, uh, combined with some of these other statistics we have looking at the network. So I, I think that's really promising. And one of the things I'm really interested to watch uh this year and in the years ahead is uh things like fediments you know these these other types of open source protocols that can you know shift some of the balance a little bit because one of the one of the problems you see in developing countries is you, you hear all these great like statistics for like bitcoin adoption and you know stable adoption whatever the case may be and a lot of it is like binance right a lot of it is like everybody has these you know custodial accounts with binance and so there's this gigantic global centralized honeypot that would would devastate millions if if you know that would all you know be taken from them or otherwise disrupted and something like Fediment you know and, and of course there's companies built on it and there's other there's also other implementations of trauma Cash, but basically the, these ideas of of using trauma Cash I think are interesting because it tries to localize some of the custody you know it basically says well don't trust Binance with your money don't trust uh, exchange XYZ with your money instead it, you know either self-custodied or if that doesn't make sense economically yet or if you you know you want privacy benefits, then basically it's it's tools to allow communities to build their own full reserve community banks with, with inbuilt privacy and convenient transactions. So I, I think that's one of the things I'm excited about is trying to decentralize and spread out some of those custody and other risks. So you don't have like, you know, so called decentralized protocol but everybody using these these gigantic honey pots. Even things like you know, as, as, as cool as like, say wallet and Satoshi is, uh, and, you know, it's super convenient, but it'd be nice to see a more private version of that. And like a bunch of those that are kind of split up. So you don't have like all, you know, custody kind of centralized and you say, you get, okay, all the, all the UX conveniences of that, but, you know, with, with a better, better privacy and a better, you know, more fractured custody situation.
0: No, agreed. And when it comes to fediments, the private payments aspect is just, the tip of the iceberg, but the modular nature of the Fediment protocol and the front ends like Fedi that are being built on top of it is going to really expand the design landscape for more complex applications. I mean, the one, obviously I'm very bullish on um, just pure Fediments for private quick payments with a better custody model than something, the wallet of Satoshi, but like the whole, I'm not sure if you have read about the idea of Feta pools, like that's it, yeah. That's another centralizing factor within the Bitcoin ecosystem right now is mining pools and this concept of a feta pool being able to spin up a federation of block constructors who can really distribute the risk of block construction at the pool level via a FEDA uh, and then provide more private payouts over lightning, um, which is something that many miners have wanted for years. The, the ability for something like that to come to market is massive. And then, you get into the whole concept of being able to create DLCs within these Fediments' more robust smart contracting capabilities like payments. is just the tip of the iceberg. I don't think people realize um, the power that's about to be unleashed with, with these fediment front ends.
1: I agree. I think people are sleeping on it and because a lot of them, as soon as they hear custody, they're not interested. Um, and I, I think, a couple way to break that up is one is just that custody is so centralized that breaking it up is just already a better step. Uh, two, privacy in, in many aspects of dealing with ecosystems sucks still, right? And this this is a huge privacy gain. And then, like you said, basically the modular nature allows all sorts of stuff that we've not even thought of uh, to be built uh, if if some degree of fediment, you know, usage in communities start to proliferate. And even just as a as a user myself, I mean, even as someone who does self-custody, cold storage Bitcoin, uh, I would like to use a fediment wallet because, you know, the private, private, you know, incoming and outcoming transactions. And if the balance, you know, gets above, like, you know, spending cash, you pull it into cold storage. Um, and so it's it's like separating what you use as your you know daily spender versus what you do for like long term sovereign. You know store value type of 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 application and i I think the cool part about bitcoin is that people can interact with whatever parts of the stack that are most useful to them you know if they want to have a few hundred dollars in savings if they want to do a lot of payments if they want a lot of privacy something like fediment is really useful for them uh you know over time when this kind of proliferates more and these front ends uh develop a little bit more uh and obviously if you want to you know store store bitcoin for like a very long period of time obviously multi-sig cold storage that kind of thing is really important and people can choose whatever parts of the stack are, are you know they, they need for their purpose at any given time
0: yeah more optionality is always good uh for all the bitcoiners out there saying oh this is terrible you don't have to use it um yeah <laughs> it's uh it's uh, I, I'm a big fan of more optionality and more functionality with this particular option i think is going to be massive for Bitcoin adoption globally, which dovetails into another question is like, what What are your thoughts on Bitcoin adoption moving forward? And what will be the driver? Will it be Western countries trying to use it as a store of value? Uh, maybe some people in the traditional financial system realizing that it is good collateral. Maybe if you mix it with some of the credit products that are looking desperately um, doomed to fail, in the U.S., that it may catch on there, or do you see Bitcoin adoption in the next three to five years being driven uh, maybe in emerging markets?
1: I would like to see emerging markets uh, be the spearhead. Uh, I like that kind of decentralization of power. Uh, you know, they're the markets that need it the most. Um, I, I think a lot of them. Basically, if you're if you're trying to send money in or out of your country, if you're trying to do work for for global people that would like to pay you, then obviously something like Bitcoin, lightning is super useful. Um, and so I think, I think medium exchange can drive it in in areas that are lacking good payment infrastructure uh, and have all these frictions uh, built in and currency problems and things like that. I think, I think Fediment and various front ends can accelerate that by making it easier, more accessible. Uh, like you said in the West, I think, I think the for now the store value aspect is is more impactful for many people. Because they have relatively good payment infrastructure most of the time, and so for them it's more just like this law. They, they view viewed as like an investment, kind of like any other investment. Um, so I, I think those two dynamics are going to drive it forward. I think when we talk in that three to five year range, rather than like say next year, but if you look in that longer term range, I think the problems you talked about earlier regarding kind of a fiscal spiral become relevant on that kind of time frame. Because I think there's going to be a situation where, you know, it becomes apparent that. No matter how high, how high you raise interest rates, you don't necessarily quell inflation over the longer term. And you, and in some contexts, you could even exacerbate it because you're actually further blowing out the deficit-driven inflation that it, that's happening. And so, if you get to a phase where the Fed is still holding rates high, but they have to resume some sort of QE, for example, to like you know fix like a treasury supply problem because there's so much treasuries being issued, that's not really a problem like this year. But it's like you know, when you talk that about that three to five year time frame, um, I think you can have like a global like oh shit moment where everybody kinda <laughs> says like they're actually they're not actually struggling to get this under their control and what can we buy instead? And I think that's where you see things like gold or Bitcoin, uh, probably both, things like that catch a bid because there's this kind of right now it's the dynamic is whenever you see either stronger labor prints or stronger inflation prints or you know Powell talks about higher rates you get you know stronger dollar you get sell off in these these other types of monies and they say okay well they're going to have to get tighter then and i think there's a i think there's an eventual phase shift where they realize that that no matter how tight they go because it actually some of that tightness exacerbates the problem that it's not necessarily that that correlation they think it is and when that correlation breaks down i think that it gets really interesting for anything that's like alternative money right you know with, with bitcoin and gold depending on the on the types of markets you're operating in being the you know the, the two like soundest
0: yeah that's where you have the psychological light switch go off and people go like, oh, they don't have control
1: yeah and... right now it's yeah you know, right now it's it they're adamant that basically raising rates is the solution and i think as long as that psychology is there it's hard for these other things to catch a bit
0: yeah but like we mentioned earlier it's getting to a point where intuitively like that seems like a logical conundrum. Cause if you raise rates, I mean, it's most, uh, heavily felt in real estate markets right now, fed fund rates going up, mortgage rates are going up towards 7%, but going back to like solving supply side issues, particularly with like energy, like if you raise the fed fund rate up to a certain point, like the cost of capital to, um, get out loans to, drill new oil and gas wells or start new energy projects gets prohibitive. And then, again, going back to the problem we were discussing earlier, that's where you have the supply side problem where there's not enough supply to meet the demand. And then you have this inflation run away while you're raising rates.
1: Exactly. I I think so. And that's why the path dependence is is challenging here because raising rates can reduce you know, demand and inflation pressures in the real estate market, right? Because they use debt so heavily. It also is having a big impact on unprofitable tech companies because they're, they've they been very reliant on structurally high equity valuations and constantly issuing new equity in lieu of profitability. Uh, obviously that's fine for startups, but if you're a mature company and that's like your your, your perpetual business model, uh, that's malinvestment, that's a problem. And a lot of that's being cleared out right now because in a, in a in higher rates, kind of like how real estate gets hit, that unprofitable, equi- you know, high equity-focused tech gets hit, because then and then it compounds on itself because then you realize, okay, now that they have to raise prices to, to make up for the fact that they're not able to constantly issue as much high value equity, and when they raise prices, their growth rates go down because their growth rates were only th- at the level they were because of artificial, you know, artificially low pricing due to not having a mandate to be profitable, um, and so though. Real estate and tech are the two areas that are adding some degree of disinflation to the mix. Um, I, I think going forward, because you're going to have in some ways stagnant prices, you're going to have less overall activity in those in those areas, and I think the Fed's basically hoping that that's enough to to counterbalance a lot of the other inflationary forces, which are energy, which are labor shortages uh, among people who make stuff and maintain stuff, uh, and the fiscal-driven inflation. And so I think we're in this this awkward phase, like now, maybe the next year, where those two forces—it's kind of hard to say which one's going to win over like a twelve-month period. That's why it's—you know—I think we still could get this period of of disinflation ahead, but then when you look out, you know, twenty-four months or you know, three to five years, uh, I think certainly those inflationary forces are stronger and can override some of the tightening that they can do in some of the most interest rate sensitive industries. And when that happens uh, I, I think you get a trend shift in psychology i think you get big questions around fed independence and political politicization of fed activity and i think actually one of the things that the challenges is that is we're we're on the we're about a week or two away from the fed uh having negative tangible equity which is interesting because now they're operating at a loss and they've been operating a loss since september and those losses have now piled up such that they are about to to equal their existing equity and so that's going to start raising independence questions and it gives certain congressmen that don't like what the fed's doing another avenue to kind of um go after them
0: look at them they're unprofitable we need to nationalize the fed (laughs) it's yeah this is something you've been covering since it started happening in september which is yeah so the fed is losing more and more money month on month as they raise rates. And so who does this affect at the end of the day? Like So the Fed member, like so who actually owns stakes in the Federal Reserve, right? It's a lot of the commercial banks and Fed members. Does this affect them at all?
1: Well, the funny thing is it probably affects them positively because even though they own a stake in the Fed, those, the fact that the, so if you back up for a second, the Fed, just like many other banks, has assets and liabilities. And uh, for the Fed, the assets are things like, Uh, Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which are on average longer duration and were locked in at these lower interest rates of old. Now their liabilities are one, Banknotes, which are the zero interest rate portion of their liabilities, so they, you know, that's that's nice for them. But then their other major liabilities are uh, bank reserves and reverse repos. So banks store their excess cash at the Fed, just like we store our cash at the bank, uh, and so they get paid interest by the Fed on those reserves uh, and reverse repos. Um, and the Fed's paying out very high interest rates on those things, which are ironically mostly going to banks, banks and money markets. Um, so all you know the fact that the the Fed raised rates so much you know they spent decades in a, in a period where their assets paid a higher level of interest than their liabilities so they were consistently profitable and they'd have to give their excess profits to the treasury um, and now because they've raised their interest rates interest rates so much the interest rates on their liabilities exceed the interest rates on their assets so they're operating at a loss so the first um, you know, fatality of this whole arrangement is that they're no longer sending money to the treasury. So the treasury had a hundred billion dollar a year income source from the fed that is just gone now. And it's gone for quite a while. Um, and a hundred billion doesn't seem like much these days, but that's, that's four NASA's worth of income, right? And that, <laughs> that's like, that's four times NASA's annual budget. Uh, that's just, it's just gone, you know, fairy dust is gone. Um, and instead, it's going towards the banking system, right? So the banks are actually doing okay with that arrangement. Um, and so I think you're going to event. And then, you know, the, the longer term threat is that you're going to get senators and Congress people being like, Hey, why are you trying to squash labor? And by the way, why are you paying all this money to banks? And why do you have negative equity, negative tangible equity? Cause they're actually using accounting kind of tricks to hide the fact that their equity is going down. Right? They actually record all their losses as assets. So it, it's kind of like magic. but basically if, that's why I say tangible equity, like if you actually you know factor out their weird accounting, it's negative tangible equity or at least about to be in about a week or two. And I think that that's you're gonna get politicization of the Fed in the sense that you're gonna have basically really easy ways for like Congress people that don't like the Fed to, to troll it better. Because you're like you have those two avenues to attack now that you didn't necessarily have in the years prior.
0: Oh, it's so tiresome. It's uh, <laughs> the the back and forth because that's where It's like puts you in a position. It's like you can see why the Fed is doing this. Like their yeah. their hand has been forced to a certain extent, um, primarily not primarily, but definitely materially driven by. The inability of uh, the government on the fiscal side to clean their house up—it um, just seems like we need to get away from this back-and-forth interaction between the two. Maybe separate uh, money from these institutions altogether. Uh, because again, it's the way you describe all this. It's hard not to be a bit pessimistic about the future of the U.S., particularly from a financial standpoint, economic standpoint. Like, wh- what is the the silver lining here is there one do you see uh, a glimmer of hope moving forward for the u.s
1: i think the silver lining is that the foreign sectors a mess 2 so if you kind of go through the list of major economic blocks i mean the united states we have the problem of you know structural trade deficits uh very high levels of political polarization uh because of some of these imbalances in the system and the fact that you know if, if foreigners stop buying our treasuries on a structural basis, as they as they kind of already have, especially at the official sector, uh, that gets really ugly for the United States pretty quick. Um, that's that's our downside. But our upside is that you know uh, we have a lot of natural resources. Uh, we have still some of the best rule of law and some of the most dynamic kind of entrepreneurial, tech driven you know ecosystem. So we certainly have strengths. We have we have basically the best geography. In terms of agriculture, river systems, access to coasts, you know, friendly, friendly borders compared to you know the, the number of borders that like China has to deal with. So we have both strengths and weaknesses. If you look at Europe, they have a worse demographic situation than the United States. They have now a worse energy situation because you know they've lost their access to, to cheap Russian gas and now they have to rely more on LNG, which is more expensive. They have to build all this infrastructure. They they've kind of they're. The German model has has been reliant on arbitraging cheap Russian gas to to make all these products that the rest of the world, especially China, consumes. But you know a lot, large portion of the world, everybody buys Mercedes, uh, so that's you know I, I I'm not very bullish on Europe in general, uh, and I, they also have a more complex you know fiscal and monetary arrangement because like imagine if the United States instead of having like basically it's like if all the states had their own like um, social security systems and some were like, they, obviously they have that in the pension side, but imagine if you had even more debt on like the state level um, and the types of like polarization you'd have from different policies, that's basically the problem over in Europe, right? You have basically a, a monetary union without a fiscal union that I think is kind of destined to run off the rails in, in a significant way. So I think that's challenging them. And if you look at China, I mean, one, you know, you authoritarian, genocidal state. So let's, there's that. But even just from a pragmatic standpoint, they they have a demographics peak. They have like some of the worst demographics going forward in the world, um, and so, you know, they have strengths like their, you know, the power of their industrial base. I mean, they they produce more electricity. They have a huge industrial base. Um, they're effective at building infrastructure, including for projects around the world. Um, but they, they do have a, a demographics problem and uh, you know, like a freedom problem. Um, and so there's really no center of power really that's like better than the United States. It's just I think that it's, it's, it's becoming less U.S. dominant. Instead of like U.S. being the only game in town like it was after World War II and for several decades, it's just increasingly this multipolar world. And so I think there's going to be spots that are better than others, but I think it's it's just a challenge that the world has to work through in terms of energy and failing money systems for like the next decade or more. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's trouble all over the world, freaks. But it's like bringing it back to energy. like, Do you think the lessons learned last year particularly um, are going to drive a tectonic shift in energy policy moving forward, or do you think it hasn't been enough?
1: I don't think it's been enough yet i I think the rhetoric out of europe shows it's not been enough i I think in the us we're not seeing a sea change yet um i think basically until you see a radical kind of push towards like nuclear you know uh Mm -hmm. i think that as long as that's not happening then it's not there's been no sea change even things like you know like uh otec you know ocean thermal energy conversion I think those types of technologies are interesting to explore because it's actually you know, kind of stored up energy that, that's accessible. Um, the fact that there's still kind of lackluster interest, most people don't know what it is. Um, I, I don't think people realize just the challenges that are ahead of us in terms of global kind of dense energy sources. And, and there's been really no sign that this is underway. I, you know, I still see people talking, when they talk about energy transition, they always are focusing on solar, wind, and batteries. And they, they seem to underestimate how much metals you need for all of that and how much hydrocarbons it takes to get all those metals let alone if you just do the math on copper and say okay well how long does it take to build a copper mine how many copper mines do we have how much copper would we need if if xyz assumptions about electrification are you know happen and it's like the the gap is just like enormous uh you know by the time you get out into like the late 2020s into the 2030s and so I, I think there's, there's not been yet a realization about the importance of dense energy and kind of like reliable plans for long-term sustainability rather than that the emphasis is always on like scoring points over the next couple quarters or saying like, hey, you know, I do this and therefore I feel good even though what I did isn't necessarily helping anyone, right? That kind of thing. I think yeah. we have to get out of that mindset and and towards long-term engineering, which is like, how do you make nuclear better? Uh, can you get OTEC e- economical? Can you, you know, a- advance geothermal, right? Can you, you know, improve energy distribution infrastructure? I think that that kind of stuff's just still not serious.
0: No, I completely agree. And that's, particularly here in the States, it's one thing, like, watching the All In podcast over the last few weeks, Chamath has been really leaning into, like, solar is like the cheapest energy that we have right now like it's going to drive this cheap energy revolution that we don't understand and number one like you mentioned i don't think he's being completely honest about the bridge necessary in terms of the rare earth metals needed to actually build out that infrastructure and all the energy and infrastructure that would be necessary for that and then number two i think what does the public a, a mass disservice particularly from solar and wind is they they leverage this uh metric lcoe like the levelized cost of energy which isn't wholly reflective of the actual cost it's just the the cost to produce as it's producing it doesn't factor in uh the the cost of the natural gas plant that needs to be spun up overnight to supply energy when when the sun's not shining and there's just like a lot of confusion uh, and rhetoric being pushed that that is doing a disservice to humanity at the end of the day i believe
1: yeah the cost to having continuous energy or energy on demand is is obviously a very different metric than the cost of highly variable energy that is is there kind of when nature allows it and it's you know they a lot of people point towards that cost curve of solar over the past decade but a lot of that is you were in a massive commodity bear market right so the cost of commodities to produce these things went down a ton. Making solar panels is very energy intensive, and you had a multi-year energy bear market, uh, including coal for a while. Uh, you know, something like 80% of solar panels are like made in China with coal, um, and so you had this kind of structural downward curve in solar, which is in the past couple of years now in an uptrend because the inputs are more expensive, and if you want to have your solar panels made domestically rather than you know in China. That's going to add a, a big cost layer as well, and so I, it's not—it's not that I'm opposed to solar, um, especially in certain mar- in certain environments. We have very, very strong sun, and where you want that degree of like you know uh, generation independence, um, you know, I, I think Africa could be a pretty big solar market, for example. Um, you know, I think solar is is a, a potential mix, but I think that the problem comes when people assign too much to it, and and kind of push something that is is not going to work on a market scale while ignoring some of the the more dense energy sources that can work all the time things like nuclear for example yeah
0: nuclear is such a no-brainer there has there has been some positive developments here in the u.s particularly i think one of the companies building out small modular reactors has gotten through some of the red tape and will begin uh deploying some of those reactors at some point this decade but I I completely agree there there needs to be a massive shift and leading in to nuclear like hey this is the densest form of energy we have we need we obviously need more cheap abundant energy like I think yes Chernobyl was bad Fukushima is bad but those are lessons we can learn from and there there are ways to do it much safer than than we were doing decades ago
1: yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, um, this is just a plane crashes, right? Plane, plane travel is very safe, but obviously every once in a while, there's like this headline incident that is like horrifying. And so that kind of gets into our psyches, the same thing's true for nuclear. If you run the numbers, even if you assume the worst, like death toll, the radiation from those nuclear disasters, it's still way, way, way fewer people than like the number of people that die from coal, like every, every year, for example just from like the, the pollution from particulates, right? So it's like, we we understate, and this happens like with driving cars too. We we, we underestimate the, the risk of driving a car on a daily basis while we overestimate the risk of air travel. And similarly, we, we underestimate the risk of, you know, either not having enough energy or some of the dirtier types of energy. And we, we, we you know, we overestimate the risk of things like nuclear uh, because they're scary, they're unknown and when they go wrong and they really go wrong. Um, and then there's the other factor that, you know, most of those, that the, even though those instances occurred in different decades, they were all with like 60s and 70s technology. Uh, you know, they were all kind of the same era of technology. Chernobyl in particular was a dumpster fire. I mean, they didn't even have like basic safety precautions uh, that allowed it to get, is what allowed it to get so bad. Whereas now modern plants and then, it, you know, the uh, additional development of small nuclear reactors, uh, I think is a huge thing like imagine if, if we just never shifted away from uh, from nuclear like we did if we had better R&D this whole time and more professionals working in it i think we'd be further ahead than we are now but we, even now we have very very promising technologies that if we were to be serious about them uh, i i think can you know at least smooth out a lot of the energy problems that we face in the years ahead uh, and i think it's just i think the like you said there's early signs of an awareness of this um, and I think that you know, if you have a, a handful of more energy crises, I think that they're going to be cumulative in the sense that more and more people will want to learn about energy and want to know how to solve these problems that keep happening to them. And I think that they'll they'll be become more aware of nuclear, become more aware of other dense energy sources. Um, you know hopefully become more aware of like you know bitcoin mining as like demand response for example i i think there's this kind of all of the above that has to take place and i think there's gonna be this like kind of harsh period that has to kind of wash out misconceptions people have around energy
0: yeah so do you foresee a harsh period coming in the coming years i mean obviously a lot of people have been talking about china reopening stoking demand for for oil and gas particularly and driving up the prices of those commodities which could lead to energy crises are you seeing that as well or is that just a meme
1: i mean i think it's a factor it depends how how fast they try to open right so for example you've seen a pretty good resurgence of domestic uh chinese air travel Um, there's still you know their their international air travel is still you know significantly below prior trends um you know their level of construction. We shouldn't probably expect, as we've seen before, because you know they've already got, you know, the, now that their population is basically, you know, flat down. Um, but I, I do think it is around the margins a factor, um, and I think the longer term factors are that countries like India and others uh, that are just kind of using more and more energy every year are going to continue that just step by step by step pace of more and more energy, um, and so I think. I, I think it, if you look at region, right, so natural gas is kind of this more local market. Uh, I think, you know, there's still a couple winners of challenges ahead for Europe. They have to really kind of get this LNG online. Um, luckily, we're building a lot of LNG export in the United States that can help smooth that out in the coming years. But I think, I think there's still kind of a danger period. Um, but I do think that the potentially the, the global issue is kind of the price of oil. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball for the timing. But I think until we see a significant supply-side response to kind of structurally higher prices, um, I think we're going to be in this period. where ever, Whenever we try to have a period of, of global growth, um, you're going to get basically the oil price coming right back and, and being a problem. And so I do think that we're going to have kind of waves of energy crises. Hopefully hopefully nothing as bad as what Europe had you know, uh, at the worst phase. Uh, but I do think you can have periods like that. Where certain energy commodities go like vertical in price, because just the supply side is is messy in terms of both production and distribution, and I do think this is it's going to be a just a recurring set of lessons we have to go through. That's probably going to be pretty harsh for five, ten, or more years. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's uh, it's crazy that we've gotten so far away from reality as a society, where many. People in positions of power don't realize the importance of energy, and what it means for the quality of life for all humans on the planet, and uh, that is the the weird paradox that the West finds itself in now, trying to like virtue signal about climate change and moving towards this green energy revolution. Then, like you mentioned, you have countries like India that are pulling themselves out of poverty, and they see what we've done here in the West. they are like, hey we want to get on par with you. So we're going to do the same thing that you did, leverage these hydrocarbons to fuel our economy. And there's just like this weird political rhetoric that uh, puts the US in a bit of a paradox. Like who are we to build up our economy with hydrocarbons, become the largest empire the earth has ever seen and turn around and say, no, you can't do that.
1: Yeah. And the same thing happened with Europe. I mean, they were like, you know, trying to convince a lot of countries to like use less coal, use less hydrocarbons in general. And as soon as they had an energy crisis, they were like, okay, we need all the coal now. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's like, well, like they, that they want it even more because they, they have, they're using less of it now and they want, you know, the basic quality of life that comes with, you know, a reasonable amount of energy. Um, and I do think that's going to be a big theme. And I think that, you know, good times allow for luxury beliefs to proliferate and going through harder times kind of scratches away those luxury beliefs and the risk in my view is that it can also create extremist beliefs uh and and blaming the wrong group for the problem right and and that that's kind of the theme that reoccurs in history that you know when you go through harder times you really have to focus on what the actual problem is which is things like energy supply and Broken money systems uh, and things like that. Whereas I think it, it, the risk is that you end up blaming all, all sorts of other groups, all, often the, the most disadvantaged groups to begin with, and that's that's not good for anyone, right? And so I, I think that's another key risk is is when you analyze how bad things get versus how you know promising things could get. I, I think it's it's how society handles those those challenges. Do do they identify the correct problems quickly enough, or do they go off on weird tangents, things like that?
0: Uh, I think particularly right now, it's very important to get this message out there because we're finding ourselves at a point where the U.S. economy is sort of teetering on the edge, the global economy is sort of teetering on the edge. And we've seen it in the last two months very acutely is the saber rattling. Uh, The the war drums are slowly beginning to beat, and that's typically what happens when uh, governments lose control of their economies and other societies they distract the populace with with war in some foreign land and that seems to be the trend that's growing right now which is a bit scary and something I think about often is like how do we get out in front of that get to people and say hey look they're trying to send you the war your problems not with those people in the far off land it is these structural problems the energy systems the monetary system um, and the fiscal problems that, that you have in your own country. Like, I mean, I'm rambling right now, but it's like how do we get that message out there to the wider populace to to really not go down the path of war because war at the scale that it would be uh, today would not be good for anybody on, on the planet.
1: I think, I mean, I don't know the answer. I think it's just one person at a time. Um, you know, two messages I would have is one is that you know, inflation leads to war and war leads to inflation. So you really don't want to exacerbate. Like basically when the pie is not growing, when there's supply side issues, countries are more likely to fight for those remaining supplies. But then ironically, because you're creating all those frictions, you're now shrinking the pie. So you might get a bigger piece of a smaller pie if you're victorious. And if you lose, you get a smaller piece of a smaller pie. Um, and so that that's just one challenge, and then the other one is is that the, the costs of war are often abstracted away from us. And I I, I did a recent um, tweet maybe a week ago or something like that where I, I I looked back on the cost of the the war in Iraq, for example, um, and because it, it, it's more relevant now because a lot of the cost is actually the accumulated debt we had from it. You know, you you had all these military operations, you had all these other things. Um, and a lot of it was financed by debt and now the interest on that debt is being refinanced at higher rates. So actually the, the higher interest rates go, the more in retrospect that war was expensive to us. And, you know, it's it's up to something like an estimated five point eight trillion, all factors considered. <laughs> and, you know, the forecasts up through like twenty fifty are like, you know, something like thirteen trillion because those, 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 those debts and other things keep, you know, the, the, what we owe to war veterans in terms of healthcare and what we owe on the debt compounded over time will keep growing. And at the time, you know, in, in, the, in 2003, something like 76% of Americans at the peak were in favor of invading Iraq. And, it, and, and so, but it's like, if you, if you then re-ran that poll and said, okay, do you wanna pay a 10% income tax uh, for the war? To cover the cost. Now, what would that number be, right? It's like if the cost is abstracted away from them, they're like, yeah, I don't know, go go do war. Uh, I'm, I'm a patriot. But if you actually say, okay, like here's here's the actual breakdown of what this means, um, you know, let alone ethics and violence and all that. It's just like if you had to actually pay for it, you know, how does this impact your life? And I think I think one thing we want to focus on this decade is like if if people either get aggressive internationally or, you know, they, they start getting tribal at home. It's like, well, let's actually examine the cost of what you're proposing. Um, and that's, that's something I'm going to try to keep hammering on.
0: Yeah. Here's a picture of your future paycheck with the, uh, the war tax taken out. Are you sure you want exactly. to do this? Yeah. Yeah. I have hope. I think in the age of social media and immediate communication technologies and the proliferation of, more open communication protocols like NOSTER, we will have the ability to get these messages out. Um, some people think I'm naive to think that, but I do. I do think it's possible. And I do think we have seen examples of this in the last decade, particularly around Syria. I do think social media played a role in, in curbing that war, but uh, it's really getting out there and educating people about the structural underlying problems that war is used as a tr- distraction from. Um, and there's a lot to be hopeful for, particularly with Bitcoin. Like, there's so much to build. There's so much promise. There's so much accessibility from a from a global perspective that I think, as Bitcoiners, I think that's one thing we need to... And not we, but one thing I try to be better at is highlighting the, the opportunity that exists uh, building on top of the Bitcoin protocol.
1: I agree. That's, I mean... You know, if I if I didn't have Bitcoin to cover, I'd be more pessimistic because I'd be covering just basically problems with with fewer solutions. And instead, it's kind of this mix of pessimism and optimism because you're covering problems, uh, but you're also covering potential solutions. And so, both in energy and in money, you know, there are severe problems in the present, but there are you know technologies that make this better over time. And so, the goal is kind of like okay. Here's, let's write about the problems. Let's write about some of the solutions. Let's let's you know be honest about some of the risks of these solutions. And so what 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 hurdles are still there? Like let's explore this. And I, I think this, the more people do that, the more hopeful people can get about you know how to fix this. And and part of that is understanding the problems of the current system. So I I I, I do try to be optimistic. Uh, I'm generally optimistic. And it just, it, it just basically comes down to, I think, going through a period of hard times and making sure people don't learn the le- like the wrong lessons from those hard times and that instead they learn the right lessons from the hard times because then you have a an era of hopefully abundance after those hard times.
0: Agreed. Actually, I think the silver lining to a lot of these tech sector layoffs is going to be there's a bunch of Bitcoiners at a lot of these companies who are very talented and now have time to actually focus on a solution and go build products that that bring a Bitcoin standard about. Um, I did have one question that I wanted to ask earlier, but I do want to ask it and it's sort of disconnected from the train of thought that we're on right now. But uh, it ties in. I forget who I was discussing this with yesterday, but how much does, going back to like employment and Fed policy, like there's many people who are working two, three jobs now. Is that factored into any of the policy decisions that the Fed is making? And if not, how is it creating a blind spot for them?
1: So I I do think they try to look at different types of metrics to make sure that that things are measuring out wrong. I don't have a high assessment of their probability of reading the data accurately. I mean, generally, they're looking at lagging data. There's also, you know, there, there are, you know, you can look at job openings, you can look at temporary jobs, you can look at overtime hours, you can look at full-time employment, you can look at, like you said, multiple multiple uh, jobs. You can look to see, you know, are there certain eras that are booming and ones that are not? Um, and I, I generally think that they're probably not going to take into account that data very well. Um, right now, if you look at the labor market, you know, what was pretty weak is temporary help services and overtime hours. Those have drifted downward, implying kind of they're, they're like early leading, more volatile um, signs of labor softness. Uh, because, you know, if you're if you're a business, you know the first thing you're going to do is hire less temporary help um, and reduce your overtime before you would consider laying people off. Um, and so I, I think we're seeing early signs of labor softness. Um, but I, th- I think the bigger problem with how they measure this is just the entire thesis that unemployment and inflation are somehow inversely correlated. Right? There are periods of time where they can be, but it's they're often not. And I, I think probably the, the the biggest risk that the Fed faces is, is the idea that they're deliberately trying to have fewer people working, which means less products and services, and higher interest on the government debt, which means even more money pouring into the private sector from that source of money creation and that's that's probably not the right mix that they're aiming for in terms of getting prices down in a way that you know you can get them down temporarily but it's like it, what everybody wants when they say they want low inflation is they want disinflationary growth right they want things to get better and for prices to be stable whereas if they're trying to do a trade off between inflation versus like a recession it's not a very attractive arrangement and so I kind of questioned their whole premise of operation. and But I think that's something that they have to go through. Instead of kind of complaining about it, it's like, well, let's see how this plays out and we'll see what lessons people learned from it over time. Um, and I think that overall, that will be more people challenging the Fed, questioning the Fed. And I don't really blame Jerome Powell too much. I mean, I think you know, ever since he came in, he's been trying to be more hawkish than his predecessors Uh, he's been trying to tighten up monetary policy to varying degrees. Um, he's, he's more transparent, um, with some of his like, you know, just descriptions of things than some of his predecessors, uh, basis, you know, there's limitations on how transparent you can be when you're running the fed. Um, but I think he's, he's, you know, it's not that I don't think he as a person is a problem. I, I think the premise of the institution is, is kind of the problem, but I think that that in some ways, it's a good thing for that to get explored and made t- more transparent because then more people see the problems. But it's also going to be a, a hard time as people go through the problems. And pe- everybody has like a armchair opinion on what the Fed should do. And it's like, well, they're going to do what they're going to do. We're going to see the outcomes. And right now, I think the outcome is that they're they're sticking to this idea that inflation and labor are kind of inversely correlated and that raising rates will quell inflation because i think they're they're fighting nineteen seventy style inflation with forty you know with you know they're fighting nineteen forty style inflation with 1970s policy which i don't think is going to go well um, uh, but yeah i don't i'm not very optimistic on their ability to navigate this well
0: yeah don't hate the player hate the game and the game is going to force a very expensive lesson on the american economy and the global economy at large um yeah fun times yeah thank thank god for bitcoin
1: I agree. Yeah, got something got something to distract us and work on, and uh, you know, be optimistic about.
0: Yes, extremely optimistic, and thank God is there to keep me busy because, like you said, if I were forced to be immersed in just doom and gloom day in and day out, I don't know how that would be for my mental health or my outlook on the future. Tough times.
1: Yeah, we'll create. No, I agree.
0: We'll create stronger men and women in the future so i think uh tough lessons we need to learn um, and luckily we have people like you getting out there educating people about the structural problems and the core of these problems so that they can better understand and make better decisions moving forward so lynn i want to thank you for taking some time to sit back down it's been too long
1: i agree yeah hopefully we'll run into each other at one of these conferences one of these one of these days and
0: it's not too late to, to book a ticket to the the Bitcoin takeover event here in the commons in a couple weeks. It's actually next week.
1: <laughs> I'll look into it.
0: <laughs> um, where can people find out more about what you're, where you're writing, um, where you're, where you're sharing your thoughts.
1: Uh is my hub uh, for most of my content. I'm also active on Twitter at Lynn contact. So people can check that out. I, I do also, I write for Swan, but then after a while I, I do republish them on my site as well so i i recently wrote an article about um open monetary information networks you know kind of just uh, observations around the implications of what things like bitcoin and noster mean compared to the existing kind of closed siloed systems so people can check out that
0: go check it out lynn alden.com and if you're not following lynn on twitter uh you're doing yourself a disservice so go follow her Lynn, and I I'm on you...
1: Nostr. I'm on Noster too. I should actually, it's pretty relevant. Yeah, I'm basically on there. I try to be active. Uh, I definitely like to explore over the past few months I've been exploring that ecosystem. So
0: I'll i yeah, will uh, yeah. let you pull out your phone. You can pull up your mpub and read that to the freaks as well. And they can, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, go follow Lynn on Noster. Lynn, you enjoy the rest of your day. Yep, you too. All right, that's
1: all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. T-key.